You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. I want to begin this week's podcast with a very, very special shout out to all of you. Yes, you. That support, Bride Ministries, Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall and the Fireplace Church, with your prayers, with your referrals, and with your giving, we appreciate you. I'm going to take a few minutes and just rehash a few of the things that we have done this year. One of the projects that is ongoing at Bride Ministries is that we are underwriting the costs of coaching with our DID coaches for survivors of satanic ritual abuse and different painful backgrounds who cannot afford their own help. We have this year built a school with nine courses now. and The ninth one is in production. It will be up maybe by the time you're listening to this podcast. This most recent one called How to Minister to the Human Spirit. But we have built a school this year and we have continued to run the Fireplace Church since, well, 2016. Next year, we'll be turning three. We have continued to run this podcast. We have continued to make groups available for the purposes of building community through this internet platform. And folks, we're still just getting started because in the future we are going to have our official DID coaching school element of our institute. We are going to have interim housing for survivors and those escaping difficult situations and So much more. Did I mention we successfully executed not one, but two uh, bride tribe retreats in the same year? And it it has just been such a phenomenal year. But I'll tell you what, we're building towards bigger things. And those of you that financially support us, you are sowing into a vision that is unfortunate packing in real time. And so I want to say thank you. And I want to encourage those of you that follow this podcast, if this is something that you believe in and you have not gotten around to supporting us, well, there's no better time. Just go to broadmovement.com, check out our donate page, and you can also write to us at P.O. Box 835-661, Richardson, Texas, 75080. Now, With that said, I do want to remind you guys, I will be in Australia next year. We have a conference planned in Adelaide. It's going to be at Field of Dreams Church. And we are going to meet on the last day of February, so February 28th, and then March 1st and 2nd. So it's going to be a three-day kind of conference, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And me and my wife will be around on Sunday as well. And so we're very excited about that trip. Looking forward to it. More details will follow as we get more things ironed out. We are 
at this point, two and a half months out. But just know, if you are in Australia and you've been following this podcast, we actually have, according to our numbers, quite a few of you in Australia hanging out with us. Praise God for you. Come and meet us. So look forward to that. I'm going to stop here. We have a very special guest this week, and we have a longer program than we've had in a while. So we're going to get right to it. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. We are embarking on another journey, folks. This week, I am bringing to you a guest by the name of Sister Carrie. Now, if you're hearing her on this podcast, just know that she has already put out her story on a number of platforms and and addressed a number of aspects of it. But this is our first opportunity to have a conversation with her and feature her incredible story. Now, just a few cliff notes. Sister Carrie Burner spent many years as a nun serving peacefully within the Catholic Church until she was sexually assaulted by clergy. After that, her search for justice and truth put her face to face with some of the highest powers in the world. And the truth is her intimate knowledge of the inner workings of the Roman Catholic Church and the evils that are hidden and covered up therein on a regular basis have become the very thing that has put her life in Jeopardy. And between the years of 2011 and 2016, she survived more than 10 attempts on her life because of the knowledge that she carries with her. uh, Some of the things that we are going to be discussing today. Now you can find her at www.clergyvictim.com. Carrie, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. And of course, the uh, clergyvictim.com is about transforming victims into victors. So So we just always have to let everyone know that our motto is to help others get out of the matrix of that kind of title of being a victim. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to do the same thing. Okay. You know, Carrie, um, can we start your story, at least on this podcast, for our audience at the beginning? How were you introduced to the Roman Catholic Church? Okay, well, it does even go before my introduction into the Roman Church. Um, uh, I had a a beautiful experience, um, but it's kind of comical how it came to be. My mother was rather strict. And so when we were growing up at times, uh, you know, in this particular instance, when I was nine years old, my mom said, that's it. You're going to be in trouble. You better go to, to your room and you better pray to God. And I'm like, okay, so I go into my room. And we were brought up with Protestant sentiments, but we weren't practicing anything. It's, Mm. you know, the typical thing. So um, I had no introduction whatsoever to Roman Catholicism at this time. We might go to the Grange Hall once a year or something or go with my Auntie Mona, precious auntie, who's my mother's auntie, to the Pentecostal church. But um, basically, when my mom told me to go to my room, I looked up and I said, okay wait a minute, before I pray to God, 
if I pray to Jesus, Buddha's going to get mad. If I pray to Buddha, Allah is going to get upset with me. Because I knew when I was nine years old, there were many religions. Mm -hmm. And so if I pray to Allah, maybe, you know, Vishnu or somebody's going to get me. And I'm like, okay, I'm not doing any of this praying until I know who God is. And I asked, I said, whoever you are, whoever you are, God, I need you to reveal who you are to me. And sure enough, proximate to that experience, I don't know exactly when, but I was still nine years old. I ended up whether, as St. Paul says, in the body or out of the body, who knows, right? But there was this sort of like a, a vision or a, a connection, and it was more than a dream in, in my estimation, my, my experience. So I, I never studied about how Jesus was betrayed, you know, the night before his death, that he was chained, you know, to a floor and, you know, he was basically held as a prisoner. Uh, and so I ended up seeing him in this underground, like a dungeon slash prison area where he was chained to the floor and he was luminous. His being was luminous. Light was coming from the inside out of him. So I knew there was something extraordinary here. And I looked at him on the floor and I was like, wait a minute, tomorrow you're going to be crucified. We got to get you out of here. <laughs> I just, I knew enough to know that he was going to be crucified tomorrow. So I went down and he assured me that everything was as exactly as it was supposed to be. And this look of serenity and peace was on him. And I was like trying to convince him. But as soon as I touched his leg, I went down and I touched his leg, which again, he had garments of white, beautiful, luminous garments. And the second I touched him, I knew that this was God, the God of the universe. Okay. And it was that moment I said, whoever this is, I want to marry this one. <laughs> this is the one I want. So from nine years old, I had this experience. And later I tried to interpret it to, to understand, well, what does this mean in a practical way? If I want to wed myself to Christ, and I think it's so cool that, you know, here we are, bride ministries, right? What a perfect, wonderful concept. I mean, this whole emphasis of the times we're in today goes back to this bridal relationship to Christ and his bride, the church. So when this happened, the only thing I could think of because of watching movies was, oh, well, nuns are brides of Christ. So I guess I have to be a nun. But wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not Catholic. <laughs> oh. You know? Oh, man. So in high school we had to walk like, I think it was like a mile and a half to our bus stop. And my bus stop actually was at a church on Route 20 that used to exist, which was moved later, years later. It's called St. Joseph's Church in Charlton, Massachusetts. And I had a friend named John, John Cox, really cool friend of mine. He kicked his hacky sack and it ended up in the vents. And he was actually a Roman Catholic. And so in order to get to the vents, he was trying to go around the church and then he went into the church and I went with him and I was shocked that the church was left open. And I was like, whoa, what is going on in here? Hmm. And he took it for granted. This was his faith. But for me, this was an awesome experience and I could feel the presence of God there. I mean, literally the burning in my heart. I could feel that there's something more to this picture here for me. So I said, John, what is this about? 
And he's just like pushing me away. Like, I'm like, no, 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 I'm dead serious. What is this about? I want to know about your faith. And so we started to talk and then uh, he connected me. Oh, then at, at to going to the bus stop, I ended up, I made a deal. And now this is kind of shrewd, but I did it anyway. My mother was very strict. So extracurricular activities were a no-go for us. Okay. So my brother and my sister and I would go down to the bus stop. So what I did was I said, let's make an agreement, Nathan and, and Christy. I said, listen, this is the agreement. We're going to tell mom that the bus is coming even earlier. So we have to leave earlier to get to this bus stop. So I could pray in the church for a half an hour. And I said, Hey, Nate, I'll buy you coffee. I'll buy you candy. Just shut up. I'll, you know, and then Christy, you can kiss your boyfriend in the driveway all day long if you want until the bus comes. So I made a deal with them and we, I was able to go down and pray for half an hour before the bus came. And every day it was just the thing I looked forward to the most in the morning. Wow. And so in the midst of that prayer, I'm like, Oh, I hear the bus. I got to run out the door mm-hmm. and I run into this priest and I'm like, and he's like, oh, well, hi, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm Kiri. And, and I, he says, um, well, well, are you Catholic? Are you, are you, I haven't seen you here before. I says, I want to be a nun. He says, oh, wow, he's really flabbergasted by that because a young, what, 16, 17-year-old saying that is like outlandish, especially for someone who wasn't even Catholic. <laughs> so he says, are you Catholic? I was like, no, we go to the Grange Hall every year. And he laughed at me and I said, but after I come back from school, I'll have 15 minutes. You can make me a Roman Catholic by then. Right. He left. He said, no, no, no. you got to go through the rite of Christian initiation for adults. And I said, well, how do you do that? He says, we'll talk. We'll, we'll discuss this further. So that's where I was introduced to, to the priest. And then this rite of Christian initiation, my mother did allow as a cr- extracurricular activity. She thought this was just a stage I was going through. Oh, she'll get over it, you know, because I was into everything in high school. I loved all the, the heavy metal, the, the metal heads and the people who spiked their hair and dyed it black with the ripped jeans. I mean, we were in the 80s here, you know. And so we Motley Crue, Metallica, ACDC, that was the day. So I was into everything. So my mom thought, oh, this is just a stage you're going through. No problem. Go, go, to the, go to the church if you want. Well, after a year, I was really serious. I said, no, I really want to become Catholic. So she came to, with, to the service with me on Easter Vigil on April, what was 1993, April 10th. One of the most moving, moving moments of my life. And my sponsor, Kathy Brochu, and, and I were there and her daughter, Amy, and my mom was there and it was a moving experience. And I said, wow, I can become a Catholic. Now I, I, I'm a Catholic now. And once I'm a Catholic, I can become a nun. That was my goal. It's all about the agenda. You know, I, I want to be a nun because I want to be married to Christ. Wow. <laughs> so that's kind of like a little of the background there. Makes sense. Um, <laughs> if you could go back. <laughs> okay. So you go through with it. Uh, Now, how old were you when you actually became a nun? Okay, so what happened was right after high school, I graduated uh, probably about a month later. It was June 13th, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, 1993. 
I went to my priest, uh, the priest, Father Bob Gratterati, um, and I just said, listen, I'm out of school now. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to go to college. I don't want to do anything that way. I want to go and become a nun. And he said, well, I'll, I'll make a few phone calls and let's just see what'll happen here. So he called Mother Teresa Benaway of the St. Benedict Center, and that's in Still River, Massachusetts, or also known as Harvard. And she was a convert too, to the Roman Catholic Church. And so she said, well, bring her on, bring her here. Pardon me. So Mother Teresa, um, Bob, Father Bob said, listen, th this, this woman is very serious about her faith. <coughs> Pardon me. And so the superior said, just bring her on down. We'll give her a trial basis. So for two weeks, uh, mother said, just let's see if it, it'll work out with all of us. Well, the second I get there, everyone falls in love with me. I'm like the little wannabe nun. And I'm going around hugging all these old women, these old nuns, like, hi, how are you? Like, I really, had, I was a blast of life, you know? And uh, how, how, this is just like for, for me in my mind, like how many women your age were applying, so to speak, to become a nun at that time? None at that specific time. Maybe two years when I was in the convent, there was um, another young young soul who came in. Um, but as far as that goes, the range of age went from um, it was the other ones that came in were in their thirties or their fifties. One one lady was in her thirties and the other one was in her fifties who came in. But I was the youngest, so I was like their little pet young nun, you know. Got it. <laughs> and the, the wannabe. So what happened was. The two-week trial worked out, and I basically started to take on the life of the nun, mm. live, live the nun's lifestyle, which they call a horarium, and adopted their way of life. I mean, I didn't want to miss anything. If it was, I followed their schedule down to a T. Mm. And what happened was, I kept saying, well, I want to I be a nun. I want to join you guys. And they were like, well, we want you to join too. And I was like, well, why can't we do it? And they said, canon law. I was like, canon what? They said, oh, canon law, you're not allowed to join and be a nun until you have two years passed since you're becoming Roman Catholic because it's like a honeymoon time. And mm -hmm. the, the Catholic Church has this, there is some kind of wisdom here where they want you to really see how it goes, maybe, you know, within the first two years of your conversion to take your time to really discern your vocation. So I was like, well, that's, that's all right, I suppose. And so mother said, well, why don't we do this? You were accepted to Salva Regina University. You were accepted to all these, to these other colleges. Um, why don't we try having you, you know, kind of burn the time there. And then on weekends, you can come back here. And then on, on summertime, you come back and work with us on the farm. And I said, well, let's give it a try. Let's work that out. It was hard for me. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and it was hard even for the nun, you know, that, that dropped me off. But we, I went to Notre Dame College in New Hampshire, Manchester, New Hampshire. What a zoo. Mm -hmm. What a zoo. I was traditional, like all the old style Catholic, 
nun with the rosary beads with the whole nine yards. And this is a massive major liberal college, federally funded the whole nine yards. So the first month or two I was there, I was preaching this old time stuff. People were probably like 40 people were getting up at breakfast to sit around my table because I was talking to two people and others were overhearing it. And so all these people started coming to my table and every morning I would be talking about my faith. And, and that's when the school um, authorities got involved and said, listen, um, our college is open to all faiths and you're really talking really strongly about your Catholic faith. And I said, I came here, I'm Catholic. <laughs> What's wrong with that? I don't understand, you know? So I just really fell head over heels in love and I was young and just involved and passionate and zealous about things. And so what happened was after I recognized at nighttime, the dorms were, were supposed to be, you know, you have your women over here and your men over here, but you know, men were coming into the women's dorm. And for me, this was inappropriate. I'm like, wait, I joined this college and I'd like some basic, you know, appropriate, you know, uh, rules and guidelines here. And then they had this thing called stereo wars. And so I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't going to, this is not conducive for my studies. So, um, and I majored in art at the time and other artwork was being more praised. Like I was doing awesome pictures of Jesus in the Byzantine era and others work on tarot cards were being featured in art shows. Although one of my pieces was featured in an art show. It was just, uh, it was an abstract. It was an abstract. So it wasn't about Christ or anything. So they allowed that one in. So that's when I went to my superior and I said, absolutely not. I'm not finishing here. It's not going to work. And mother was totally cool with that. So then I joined a very strict college called Magdalene College in Warner, New Hampshire. Years later, when I sat down with two men in the um, uh, Marines, they said to me, our schedules look like wimps compared to your schedule you had to follow at that college. It was hardcore. Wow. Hardcore. Okay. And so I believe in God's great wisdom, I went to that college in order to prepare because I was more of a feeling type of person. And, but when I went to this college, it really drilled into me. Um, we, we, we did the Socratic method of inquiry. We were involved in the classics of the classical, the classic writings, very, you know, you know, I'm talking philosophy, theology, you know, music, you know, like real beautiful polyphony music, Gregorian chant, old school stuff, really cool stuff. Okay. So I went to that college, I finished. And after three years, I ended up doing my thesis, got an A standing ovation on that. You know, it was rough, but it was a good growing experience for me. Mm -hmm. And so all of this to say is God prepares us. And it's interesting in the college, they even said this to us. They said in the formation that we provide here, they said, no matter what you choose for your path after this, no matter what it is, we are training you to get through anything. Mm. And you know what? I believe that that's true. It wasn't easy being there, but it was, it's absolutely true. I believe that. So I commend uh, Magdalene College, though their approach and, and things weren't always perfect, the essence of what they were trying to do certainly was successful. So now moving on. So yeah. I became a nun, mm -hmm. finally after two years, but before that I found a loophole. 
okay. in, in canon law to join as an oblate or as an associate of the order. So mother straight away said, you know what, kid, you're coming in. We're going to do a little, do your promises. I got in. Then I became a nun. I start off as a novice. You start off as a novice. I believe that was in 1990. Well, first you start off as a postulant. Comes from the word to ask, to postulate. Then after six months or a year or something, then you start your novitiate and uh, novice. No vices. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no vice. Then after you become a novice, after three years of that, then you go into your first vows. After third after first vows, after three years after that, you do your final profession. Mm -hmm. And the three vows that you take, poverty, chastity, obedience, that's the, the normal evangelical councils as held uh, by the Roman church. But we had a fourth vow. Now, this is where things get very interesting. Mm -hmm. Our fourth vow was to uphold a, a teaching, an age-old dogma, that was on the books called No Salvation Outside the, the Catholic Church. Extra Ecclesium Nulla Salus. I'm actually uh, familiar with that. I had done uh, so much research into the Roman Catholic Church when I first began my journey. It was like I found out about 9-11, then it yep. was the Jesuit order and yep. the Roman Catholic Church. And I really, I actually bought the whole book of doctrine for the Roman Catholic Church. And I was like, what do they believe? Anyway. <laughs> How awesome. So you probably have that big catechism of the Catholic Church. I the compendium. Away, but I used to. <laughs> yeah, I hear you on that too. I, I lost a lot of my library along the way. But yeah, I studied, you know, immense like theology and all this sort of thing. And, and so here's the thing. That teaching at the time didn't bother me because they showed it to me. It was in black and white and it was a teaching. You know, Pope Boniface VIII, Innocent III, Fourth Lateran Council from the 1200s on, uh, they proved to me, well, in fact, that the popes did, you know, we say, declare, define, and pronounce that every human creature must be subject to the Roman pontiff. Well, I'm saying, well, heck, if the pope said it and we agree that in, in papal infallibility was a teaching that we believed in, I was like, well, I have no reason to question that. So in love... Um, you know, then I have to uphold the dogma too, you know, and I tried to do so in love as best as I could, but my sister would testify that I was a little rough on it, mm. a little zealous on it. So after, and so having held this teaching in my heart, I was like a blank board, you know, uh, a, a, a blank board. So I absorbed all these teachings into my heart, not just my brain. So then I started having this, this calling. I felt this stirring within me. And I did have an interaction again with Christ. But this time it wasn't good. This was extremely painful. Hmm. I didn't, but this wasn't about my salvation. Years later, I came to find out that there's a difference here in the way that this, this kind of um, spiritual interaction took place. But I was literally before the throne of Christ. He was holding up a red flag with a, 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 I mean, a, a white flag with a, a red cross on it. And it was all light. It was so much light. It was very, very hard for me to even get to see his features. And I literally prostrated myself in this examination because it was a massive examination of my conscience before God. And Jesus was not pleased with me. And I was like, what is going on here? I was so confused and puzzled because I couldn't understand. I'm like, 
in my heart, you can speak, but without saying words, it was the fastest communication that could ever take place. And I said to Christ, but I'm in the convent. I'm serving you. I think I'm serving you. And everyone's happy with me here. I'm, I'm doing well with my work here. I'm, I'm doing the best I can to serve my neighbors. So I was really confused. And he said, yeah, you may be a nun there, but I have another calling for you and you need to follow it. And it's, it's deeper intimacy with me. And I'm like, oh no, because I was passing those thoughts off as a temptation and just kept swatting them away like flies because the practical, what was in front of me was I had an active order and I was a part of the active, because in, in, in the convents, you know, we have the cloistered nuns that are, that are separated from the world in a very real way, they're secluded. And then you have your active nuns that teach or interface with the public. Well, ours with the, was the one that interfaced with the public. So when these thoughts would come to me, I was like, oh, that's a temptation. Get it out of your head. And furthermore, on top of it, the difficulty was no other convent was out there teaching no salvation outside the church. And I felt that that was like, you have to, you have to stand up for that dogma. So after this experience, I... I ex explained this to my mother superior and I said, mother, I don't know what to do. I'm beside myself. I don't know if I'm supposed to leave. She got sick. My novice mistress got sick. I was sick for weeks for like two weeks, well, even longer than that. But in this particular instance, um, we were all sick to our stomachs because we're just trying to do God's will. You know, there was not, there was never any time where the superior was trying to force something down my throat. You know, Mother Teresa Benaway was just, to my opinion, she's, she's a saint. She's holy. And I'll show you a picture of her. I want to do that. This is a picture of my superior. I don't know if I can. There she is. She's with her dog, Pepper, on the tractor. And she was just a precious, precious. I love this woman. And I ended up, she ended up leaving this world. And so, um, so the deal is at, at this stage in the game, we all agreed, my mother superior, my novice mistress, we all agreed that I'll take a whole year to pray about this before I just immediately act. So mother gave me extra time in the chapel, an hour a day, it's called the holy hour. And I prayed for the things that she had on the list. And I did that for a whole year after the year it was still determined that I was, I was supposed to go. And so I said, a mother, I don't know what to do. She says, you have my blessing and the blessing of the order to go. And I said, I feel like I'm supposed to be a hermit or some sort of contemplative nun. And there was a canon for this, this canon 603 under the code of, uh, I believe it was 1983 or 84 somewhere, code of canon law, it's on my shelf over there. And so basically uh, I had the blessing. So. I went off first, you know, went to other places. All of this is enumerated in my book, The Divine, Divine Challenge. That's on my, my website, clergyvictim.com. And very soon, the PDF is for free. You know, you can still get that for free on my website. But the hard copy is going to soon be available, probably by uh, the end of this month or early January of next year. So that's going to be ready for everybody. Um, so now, at this point, I know I have a calling, 
I'm going to have to establish myself in the world first, which means I, when I was in the convent, I never ever knew how to write a check. We were, we were completely isolated into our own category of work we had to do. So I was in the farm. I was also involved in other projects in the convent, but I wasn't involved in accounting or anything like that. So when I went in, I was 17. And when I came out, I was like 22 or 23 or whatever it was. It was, uh, 1998 of October. So however, whoever can do the math, it's in my book. <laughs> I'm bad with chronologies. You, you essentially had no life skills at this point. Zero. A fish out of water. Totally. Mm. So I'm like, okay, I moved back to my hometown. My uncle and aunt, Auntie Donna and Uncle Kevin, allowed me to go in the house for a few months mm-hmm. and just get on my feet. Totally cool. And very generous to do that. And so... The cool thing was they were within five miles or less from a monastery where I could frequent daily mass because I was still doing my daily mass and prayer on top of things while trying to navigate the world. Mm -hmm. So I did that. And so I ended up getting my driver's license within one, two weeks. I ended up getting my license insurance, um, you know, a job. I had my friends in church who who connected me to a, a wonderful place. And so I got all this stuff up and running and I'm starting to feel pretty good about that. And then I said, I frequent this monastery, St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts and fell in love all over again because I visited them way back when I was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. The only problem was when I visited when I was 15, I knew that they're all monks and men and they've got this beautiful building that's to die for practically. I shouldn't say that because <laughs> in my case, uh, anyway, it's gorgeous. Okay. It, it emulates to me the structures that one would see in heaven. Very, very powerful. And, and the, the chapel is built. If you look at it aerially, look at down at it, it's built in the form of a cross. Very, very beautiful and powerful. Um, so now I frequent this, this chapel and I'm there for eight months and I'm very serious. So I'm working maybe a couple of jobs. I'm going back and forth, trying to maintain myself, get out, get an apartment, which I did do, and which was nice close by. And within eight months of my praying at this wall that was separating the, 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 lay, the lay area from the monk's area, which was the sanctuary, that's what they called it, the sanctuary, I started to have these spiritual experiences, very powerful spiritual experiences. And therefore, as a result, it's only natural you're going to fall in love with the place where these things take place, you see? So then um, I thought I was not being noticed. I was very quiet. I wasn't even shaking people's hand during the sign of peace. I didn't want anyone to know me. I just wanted to pray there and not be a distraction to the monk's life, way of life and, and really honored and respected that. Well, Kathy, my friend, she's an older woman. She's like, well, can you help me, you know, escort me up the stairs because I need need to use the ladies' room. I was like, well, sure. So I grab her. She grabs my arm, and I go up with her to the ladies' room, which was a separate facility, which was the the, the guest house. They didn't have bathrooms near the chapel. There's a wisdom in that. You don't want to distract people with the sound of bathrooms, but there's got to be another way. But anyways, Kathy and I go up. And a monk greets us at the door, and she knew who the monk was. And his name was Brother Philippe Macron. And he laughs this giggle of, of beauty. It was just so beautiful. And he's so friendly and open and loving. And I'm like, wow. 
And so Kathy said, well, go ahead, sit down, go and have a seat. And so we started talking and brother Philippe said, are you the lady that prays in the side chapels the past six months or so? It was really eight months. And I said, yes. And I said, I don't expect that anyone should know it's me. I said, I've been very quiet. I hope I'm not making any noises. I'm just reading my books and things. And he said, no, God, no. It's wonderful to have you here. He says, uh, so I started to share my poetry in my journals. And at this stage, he's like, wait a minute. This is too good. I have to get another month over here to listen to this. So he goes and gets Brother pa Patrick McHale. And Brother Matt Patrick sits down next to me. And I start sharing more of my journal with him. And he bursts out into tears and says, I've been here for, I don't know, over three decades. And I have never seen what you see in this chapel. He says, you got to share these writings with the abbot. And I'm like, that's embarrassing. Um, I never intended, these are my journal notes. You know, I never intended to share them with anyone. But I figured, you know, he might have an argument there. So I, I thought about it. And um, I did exactly as he said. So I shared those writings with the abbot and then later had a meeting with the abbot and asked the abbot, you know, um, you know, is it possible because one of your priests, Father Rayfield Simon offered to be my confessor, to be my spiritual advisor. Would it be possible to have him as my guide? And but the, the, the abbot told this Father Rayfield, listen, you know, let's see where she stands. Go ahead and talk to her a couple of times. I give full permission to do that. And then after you interview her, let's see if perhaps you guys might, guys might be a good fit. So I followed the, the, what, what they asked. And that's how Divine Challenge was written in the beginning. Mm. The abbot, um, the, Father Rayfield said, well, he gave me a series of questions. And one of them, he said, can you please write your story of your life? So it took me a couple of months to do that. And I said, well, of course, I'll do that. But that's kind of, all right. I said, fine, I'll do it. And then he came back and he says, you know, he was a psychologist. He read it and he was deeply moved by the story. And he says, you are already healed of incredible things in your past. Because as you'll see, when you read the book, it's pretty intense. Uh, I grew up, no, you know, no father or mother is trying to raise three kids on her own. You know, the whole nine yards, the typical things that are out there. But hardcore for a kid. So at this point, Father Rayfield is so pleased and he asks me another series of questions connecting to some theology relating to the convent I was a part of. I passed that with flying colors. He was so pleased. So he says, well, you know what? I'm really happy. I've got everything I need. Let me see if we can get the abbot to give permission. You know, he approaches the abbot says that she did everything I asked and the abbot says, nope, nope, you can't give her, you can't be her spiritual director. And mm. Father Raphael and I were extremely puzzled by this. So I was like, I'm wondering, did I say something wrong? Did I, you know, so I just couldn't understand what was happening. So I was like, all right, I'll just leave it alone. I left it alone. Then months later, I was in the gift shop purchasing something and a priest asked me there, Father Isaac and Father Aquinas, hi, how are you doing? And immediately I just burst out into tears. 
And I said, I don't know. I don't understand why this is happening, but I feel like I was dropped off a cliff. The abbot had me interact with someone for several months. I thought I did everything as was asked. And then the abbot said no to me, you know, and so Father Isaac said, let me see if I can help you. You know, he's trying to be fair. You know, he's like, let's see if we could, you know, deal with you fairly and so forth. And so that, that conversation, he said, my, my, my schedule's open seven tonight. Let's talk. I said, great. He says, well, what you're asking isn't unreasonable. Why don't you go ahead and drop a proposal? They call it a propositum. I did such. And I showed the grounding of my desire to be a nun, but to be autonomous and connected near St. Joseph's Abbey on my own land, taking care of myself, taking care of my own health insurance, doing all those things that I have to be responsible to do. So at this stage, I'm literally like ecstatic now because Father Isaac is listening to me. And so I drop the proposal and I can prove it in the history of, of the writings of the church and everything. I proved everything. St. Elrod of Riveau, the life of a recluse. I, I, I cited everything. De familiaribus ordinis, a document that proves that you can have um, uh, tertiary orders in the, in the Cistercian, you know, I apologize, not, not everybody. All of which knows. my listening audience isn't really know about it all anyway. Sorry, I'm forgetting. All right, let's but, move the story forward. <laughs> what? Sturgia, what? <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay. Bottom line is I was accepted into their hearts, almost like a family. Okay. Yeah, sure. That's the bottom line. And what happened was I ended up going meeting with the priest with permission and the priest lunges out, grabs my left breast, it turns into a court case. I didn't want it to go into a court case. I tried to resolve it privately behind closed doors. I went through a long process with that. It went to the courts in order to be used as a modality so that if other victims saw what happened to me in the newspapers, they would stay far away from ever bringing their allegation forward. Okay. I was used as an example because then I found out later, I went into the court. This was a criminal case. Uh, Commonwealth versus Joseph Chukong. I lost the case. I was telling the truth. The transcript pretty much in most of its essence is in my book, Divine Challenge. Um, then at this point, um, I ended up realizing that the courts are being controlled by the Catholic Church, by the Vatican. And I had evidence for that. And I had cases and I had collected more and more evidence. And after this happened to me, I went straight to the newspapers and got involved, very active involvement so, to the. So, so, so the priest that you submitted all of this stuff that you put together was the one who lunged at you afterwards. No, it was Father Joseph Chukong and the priest that was on my side before that, Father Rayfield, tried to help me resolve that privately behind closed doors. Okay. But it didn't work because I believe he was set up to do that by the abbot. There's something about this abbot, and I couldn't put it all together until years and years and years later. Okay? okay. 15 so, years so, later. It took so me 15 you, years. You, you lost the court case. Yeah. But then you realized the courts were being run, or at least manipulated, by the Roman Catholic Church. And Absolutely. You were Absolutely. And that's on October 17, 2007, Greg Szymanski's program. Uh, I gave a two-hour interview at that point. 
um, on that particular issue. I had a woman who was a victim advocate also attesting to that fact. Her name is Mary T. Jean. Her case, uh, Mary Jean versus Massachusetts State Police. Did you ever hear of a case where the district attorney had a restraining, they had a restraining order, meaning the federal court issued a restraining order against the Massachusetts police and the DA to protect this woman, Mary Jean, because they were digging through her trash, they were following her, the police were, were getting her in, you know, to discussions because she was involved politically with helping victims of clergy abuse. And she was involved politically with getting rid of the old regime, meaning John J. Conti, who is tied into this whole Catholic fabric in Worcester, Massachusetts, the Catholic yeah. Church, the hierarchy. So now, where does the torture come in? Okay, now, there's two factors on this one, in my, my case. Okay. Um, first, the teaching of no salvation outside the church was a belief I held to very strongly. So there's spiritual abuse, okay, and then you have then you have another incident that happened later down the road because they didn't want me to, nobody wanted me to find out, as far as the Catholic Church goes, uh, how things really operate there. And, and when I was putting my finger on the pulse of this, the, the clergy sexual abuse problem, it didn't stay in the sexual abuse arena. It went straight into satanic abuse. It went straight into a murder. It went straight into a globalist plan to kill for, for genocide on especially Americans. My research went so deep that someone, let's just put it this way, who was in the deep state, I say deep state in quotes because I don't know what to, you call them. They're definitely rogue agents, okay? They told me in my face that I had um, uh, classified information. And I said, that's crazy. I said, I don't have, everything I have is open source. He said, and he was threatening me. This was later down the road and I'm, we're gonna get there. But he said, you don't understand. Classified doesn't just mean that you have a marking on a document. It means that someone took information over a, a large a, a period of time and they were able to, to divulge a plan that was set up in advance and that's exactly what you did. You, you're divulging a plan that we had planned for over 200 years and you're, you're destroying it. I have a recorded Department of Defense agent on a recording telling me, stop being a shit disturber. The Vatican will give you over $100 million if you shut your mouth. I have that recorded. I have text messages from the Department of Defense. You know, uh, from these are guys. I have their names. Everything was sent to Donald Trump, okay? So I'm going to start accelerating the story because I feel it's very hard for me to go through the very early beginnings because the Catholic Church in my beginnings was good. So I have to paint the truth that in my beginnings, I had really good experiences. So it wasn't bad in the beginning. It was only years and years later that I put it all together, what was really happening. So bottom line is I lost the case. I learned how things truly operate in the court systems. I was able to collect that data. 
and it's all it's objective data. Um, then I moved from that point to um, to joining Survivors Network for those abused by priests. Uh, and, and in that, in the course of that, I learned about, you know, the planned murders of, of, of children who uh, were abused by bishops. And, and in order to shut the kids up, they, the bishops were involved in, in literally killing. These are firsthand accounts with literally their family members walking in the room talking about it, okay? Then people would bump into me in the courtroom, in the hallway, because I used to, I was on television, on the news. I was a, an advocate, pri privately, but I was an advocate for victims of clergy abuse. And in advocating for these people, people would bump into me in the hallway in the court and hand me files. And they were in the military and they gave me pictures of people that the FBI never even got these photographs until later. I was the first one to get things like uh, literally a priest being killed because, because the law wouldn't do anything about it, you know? And I'm like, and they would just bump me in the hallway, give me this package. And I, I verified the information. I'm like, Oh my God, this guy, this is true. This is really true. So when you have rogue elements coming in and taking over your government, People are just going to do what they feel is best. And, you know, I'm not in agreement with being an anarchist, but this is the suffering. This is the level of suffering that I came in contact with and more and more and more. So for seven years, I was involved in that whole arena, helping victims of clergy abuse, investigating, um, taking in data, um, um, having, you know, like conferences with the district attorney. I was literally involved in those conferences as a, uh, you know, an expert as a witness. And so I saw the line. I saw how the police would change the reports, all of this to protect the diocese. And we even had photographs and video of priests who were by law told that they can't be in, with children alone. And we've got them alone in a bedroom with children okay. after, after those orders were put up by a judge. And then they do nothing about it. This is Massachusetts, okay? So after those seven years of hell, I said, I can't do this. It's way too, it's way too hard for me. Um, it was hard. So I left and I went to Texas and I studied law. I studied multiple kinds of private law. I ended up realizing cool successes, you know, a couple, you know, success, real success stories, like getting people out of, out of jail, out of prison. Um, credit card debt, um, you name it, okay? I've, I've helped people on many, many kinds of cases. And I learned that there's a whole other world. There's a private law world. And then I really realized, oh, of course, this is why I lost the case. And it's all about money. And literally, I mean, every single court case has a, a, a CUSIP number attached to it, okay? I shouldn't probably get into too much detail, but the point is- Well, that, it, that, that's, that's fascinating. Now, what is that number? The, the CUSIP ties to that which is being traded on the market. So uh -huh. if there, um, let me see, the, 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 there's a definition, I'm trying to think here what that definition is, uniform, securities, identification. I forget, I, I don't have memorization of the acronym. Okay. But basically what happens is um, when you go to court, 
because you are the surety for that all caps entity that you, you hold, meaning if you pull out your, your, your driver's license, you're going to see an all caps name there. That all caps name is not you, but it is presumed that it is, that it is that you are the surety for that all caps name. Okay. So what does that mean? In the scripture, it says in Proverbs, um, don't be surety for a stranger. You will surely smart for it, meaning you're going to hurt. It's going to cause you problems. And so what happened was when we were born about 10 or 13 days after our birth, the state, you know, our mother informed on us and they, they announced our birth to the state in, in that act, they issue you a birth certificate. When they issue you the birth certificate, it's an all caps entity. And I called, uh, in my case, I called the Massachusetts vital statistics office. And they said, uh, I said, did they open a corporation that day? And they said, uh, it's, it's like a quasi corporation. So they admitted it and that's recorded. Okay. Um, being in Texas, I have a lot of uh, leeway as to what I can do regarding recordings. So now, um, so when, when you're, when you're the surety for that account, when you open a court case, it's, you're integrating into a system. In, in this case, if it's criminal, it's going to be the court registry investment system. So when you open a court case, what you're doing is you're opening an accounting. You're opening an account. And with what? With your name, your social security numbers tied to that name. There's a value of the, how much value you're being traded on for the duration of your life is all tied into that. And in, in this case, of, as far as the CRIS goes, the Court Registry Investment System, with a criminal case, um, it's, it's basically, it's, there's a lot of funds involved here. I mean, mm. if you look it up, you're going to see millions uh, of dollars um, that is being literally traded based mm. upon a court case. So not only are we being traded on in the open market, as Revelation readily talks about in the scriptures, but whatever we involve ourselves with is also being traded because uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, but it goes into further debt as far as the further, you know, more national debt, more, more debt, more debt. So you have to hypothecate more things. It can't just be one thing. It has to be more than one thing. So everything we're doing is being hypothecated. So, um, hypothecated another thing, um, basically uh, bought and sold and traded, um, for a value. Okay. 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 So all of this to say mm -hmm. is, it was bad business for me to go against a Roman Catholic priest. And you might, some people might say, well, you know, many people go against the priest, but at this time in, in 2002 was when the Boston cases started coming out in the paper and that whole thing was starting to get exposed. Well, my situation happened in 2001. Mm. And in my, my case, the priests I was dealing with in retrospect, when I look back on it, they were a part of a monastery who was a cover for a CIA front. So they had oh, extra, extra yeah. protections. I didn't know this at the time. Okay. So other priests might go to jail. Other priests might have to answer for some of these situations. 
But because St. Joseph's Abbey was a CIA cover, a front, that's why they had to go, go to incredible length to protect this priest. Okay. And there was much more stuff involved in that. And so if you go to my website, clergyvictim.com, you're going to see military grades nanotechnology used in efforts to silence whistleblower none. We're going to graduate the story into what happened to me later because the early beginnings, that's a con that may be a common thing. You know, people are abused by a priest. The only difference that's not common is I didn't take it and mm -hmm. I handed it right back to them. And I won in the court of public opinion in the newspapers. I had newspaper, um, um, David door, um, writers who came into my home and said, uh, bottom line, your phone is being tapped. And I was threatened with my life was threatened for taking on your story. And someone from St. Joseph's Abbey called me within the first 20 minutes of, of your having dropped this package off to me. You're being watched. He said, you've got to be careful. Later, uh, a representative of the Diocese of Worcester, uh, Sister Paula ended up divulging information to me uh, through communication, through an email that and then in verbally too, she was trying to help me out here. She was letting me know you're being followed 24 hours a day. And it, I mean, this was after the court case, after I lost the court case. So I was like, why are people following me? I don't understand. I don't get it. So now I'm in Texas. I'm learning this stuff about law and hypothecation and birth certificates and fun stuff like that. I think I'm minding my own business. I go on my website and I still see St. Joseph's Abbey looking at my website, downloading things. They're keeping track of me. So 2009, 2013, 2014, I have their, their IP. I still have all those photographs to show all that. And I'm like, why do they even care? I'm gone. I'm not even there in Massachusetts. I'm minding my business. I'm not even doing radio shows at the time. So then um, now, I, I go into a surgery in 2011. I got the creeps about it. And I'm like, well, stop being conspiratorial. You know, all I have to do is go into a sinus surgery. Let me just ask this question. Okay. Would you have considered yourself a targeted individual by this point? In objectivity, it's absolutely a yes. But in the moment that I was going through it, I was like, no, you know, that's nonsense. I, okay. I didn't. You see what I'm saying? I was like, oh, that's, this is stupid. You know, why would someone look me up on a website? Why would someone be following me? So yeah, in a, an objective answer to that is frankly, yes, I was a targeted individual at that time being followed and tracked. And even my activities were being limited. So that which I was trying to accomplish was being hindered. So I have, I have in particular, I approached to try to do a civil suit because I lost the criminal case. But I had plenty of evidence to win in a civil suit. A civil suit. Mm. I went to Mitchell Garabedian, who's the top attorney in that movie. Um, uh, come on now. Um, there's a famous movie out there, Spotlight. Mm. And he's featured as the main character in the movie for helping other victims uh, to, to, to get their suits, to get their lawsuits won. And so I approached him and he said, I ain't going near your case with a 10 foot pole. Yeah, it's worth millions, but I ain't touching it. I'm like, what do you know that I don't know? Why, why do people keep running away from me? Like if I talk about the Abbey, everyone just runs away, like scatters, scatters like rats. <laughs> I'm like, I don't get it. I was so ignorant back then. Okay. 
My God. And, and why should I know anything? I was just a nun. All well, I wanted hey, to pray on. and love yeah. the Lord. Yeah. You know? So then, uh, so yeah, okay. So I, I approach a civil suit. I, I go into it. I want to go into a civil suit. I want to try to get, you know, something to go on with that. Craig F. Ianini, I call him. I get the funds ready to rock and roll. I'm going to send him the funds the following morning. He writes me a letter. I can't take on your case. I said, did the Abbey call you? He says, I'm not allowed to talk about it. Click. He wrote me a letter. My book, Divine Challenge, I tried to publish it four times. Zulon Press. I'm naming it. I don't care. Stephen Mashad, Hugh Ainsworth. Stephen Mashad wrote a book about uh, St. Joseph's Abbey called If You Love Me, You'll Do My Will. And this was about way back in the early beginnings, tying the Abbey back into big money through... Uh, Sarita East and, and uh, uh, monks, you know, connecting to women who are about ready to die, trying to get their, their, uh, their estates, okay? This mm -hmm. is all tied into J. Peter Grace and big world globalist uh, stuff, okay? That's all, it's all connected in that book, but I didn't connect the dots years ago. So, so I asked Stephen if he would help me with my book. He said, sure. And I even said back then, we'll just make up fake names. We'll do anonymous names in the book. We don't have to do real names. So he's like, great. So he, he was on the project for like an, a year, like sitting on it. And then things got so bad in his life. He says, I can't. I was like, okay. Then I went to teach Trinity Broadcasting Network. I'm saying it the way it is. And their lawyer talked to me in 2008. I was sitting there with my friend, Mosiah Armstrong. And he's like, okay, great. Let's move forward. A few days later on Thursday, we're supposed to call. Nope. Can't take it. Then I was with a Dr. Vincent Gianni Hayes. She held my manuscript for about a year. I had to really get pretty intense with her about getting my manuscript back. So this was four attempts. In my book, Divine Challenge, only covered up to the year 2000. And at that time, it only covered up to what was covered up to at that time. So, so your audience understands the book only goes up to 2008 when I left the Roman church, okay? Uh, my my next book is going to cover from 2008 to the present. Okay. Um, and of course, my uh, I'm also. Um, so anyway, um, well, here's the deal. So at this stage, yes, I was a targeted individual, but I still refused to believe I was very much like, I don't want to buy into conspiracy like that. I just want to move on with my life. And if I don't pay attention, maybe it will go away. And if there was any torture or torment, it was because of the resistance, the tracking, the harassment, and the spiritual implications of that, because it's kind of like spiritual abuse from your perspective. And negating my, 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 what happened to me. Like if, if someone says, no, this never happened to you, and they continue to persist in that for a long period of time. Yeah. That denial repeatedly over long periods of time definitely causes serious issues um, because it's, it's, it's the prolonging of the offense and not having any relief for it in any forum where I could get any relief anywhere was the problem. And so uh, that's where, um, you know, God had to sustain me in, in through, through, the, through that duration, through that time. Okay. So... Going into the Texas, okay, I'm in Texas. Yeah. Now I want to go in. I, I got a sinus surgery. I, I just I I want to approach this in a very logical way. Um, yes, I had the creeps, so I hired a security team, you know, to come in. 
uh, high clearance Department of Defense, really good person. And um, I said, okay, great, everything's gonna be fine, no big deal, you know, no conspiracy here, no big deal. So I, I go in to the surgery and the doctor's hands are shaking and I grabbed his hand and I said, you're gonna be fine. I couldn't figure out why he was nervous. And it could have been a little bit too, you know, he could have been suffering from a physical issue, but I was not privy to that. Although I would have expected he would let me know if he had some sort of sickness. Um, so at this point, um, I came out of the surgery and now before I even went into the surgery, the anesthesiologist came up to me and I never talked to the anesthesiologist and he said, now, what was the surgery for? It was just to remove a polyp and to change, do a little bit of um, uh, sinus, uh, to, to remove some bone, contrabullosa particularly in the sinus area. It got um, All right. So I had already had a sinus surgery before in the same spot, you know, as far as the, the, the polyp. Yeah. So I was like, I've already done this before. No big deal. The polyp just grew back. We'll fix it. And um, so now the anesthesiologist comes into the room and he says, I'm going to do everything I can to get your, your security into, into the operation room. And I was like, all right, that's a little weird, but I never told him. So I just couldn't understand it. I just couldn't understand what was going on as usual. It's just, I say, all right, it, it is what it is. No big deal. We're going to get through it. So I got out of the surgery. As I woke up, I came out. I could feel strange things happening around my ears that didn't happen in the previous um, surgery. Uh, I felt an openness, strange, just strange. I was notating it, just keeping in mind, just observing. Um, and I was left in the hall. My friend Mark Ellis wheeled me into the hall and so he could go and get the car and get me into the car. And the anesthesiologist came in. He looked at me and he shook his head like this and he was dead serious. And he kind of put his arms up, you know, like folded his arms. And I'm looking at him like, everything's cool. I'm alive. What's your problem? You know what I mean? <laughs> everything's fine. But when I came out of the experience, my, my security guard was gone. He had to go pick up his daughter or something like that. I was like, well, whatever. You know, I wasn't paying him. So what, whatever, you know, beggars can't be choosers. I tried to pay him, but he didn't accept payment. So after this, I go home and immediately... For five weeks, every day, I was itching. I scratched wicked, incredible itching spell. And I, I complained. I said to the hospital, I said, I, you've got to clean your sheets. I thought it was bed bugs. It was, oh. it was not bed bugs. Because I, I told the doctor, give me some creams. And I took the creams and nothing, nothing worked. If it was bed bugs, those creams would have worked on it. Sure. So I'm like, no, it's not that. So I just kept taking pictures. I kept a log. I kept photographing everything, kept a journal. And at that stage, um, I just, you know, started to pay attention to my symptoms. So a year and a half later goes by after the surgery and the symptoms kept getting worse and worse. And I'm like, I don't understand. I, I'm, I'm 30 something years old. I shouldn't be having menopause symptoms, <laughs> you know? I felt like I was being cooked from the inside out. And now I'm noticing, I'm like, okay, there's something different going on here. So I helped my uncle years ago in 2006 
And this was, you know, my, you know, my, my uncle's story is thank God I got to know about it because otherwise I would not have known what to do at this point. When I was experiencing symptoms, I went into a, a Google search engine and the search engine basically said that I was experiencing microwave symptoms. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't make any sense because I don't use a microwave. And now, so at this point, would you have defined yourself as a targeted individual? Still at this point, I didn't have enough data to make any determination. And if I don't have enough data, I, I never, I try not to, I don't say never. I do my best not to define something until I really have all the data in my hands. Now, but objectively, yes, I was. <laughs> and I just got to interject at this point, because this is one of the things that your story is really cool about doing is that you're able to string together one event after another to come to a logical deduction as to why you would be targeted with technologies and different things to cause torture and pain as a targeted individual. Many targeted individuals that contact us, and I'm sure that you've experienced some of this as well, just by getting out there telling your story, is that they don't actually have the dots that connect. All they do is wake up one day and feel like they're getting blasted by microwaves from the inside out. And they're like, is it a demon? And you know, <laughs> I mean, I, it could be, but oftentimes we're running into more and more of the technology stuff. And it is being put inside of people. And it's, it, it, I mean, there are three letter agencies that back some of this stuff. And some of it goes higher than that or more bizarre than that. Anyway. And it does tie into demonic. I mean, there's no question there's a demonic element here. And it goes, it phases in and out, just like we as people. We're, we're spiritual, we're physical, we're, we have, you know, we're not just one thing. And the same with this kind of attack. It's not just a physical attack. It's, it's both. It's spiritual, physical, psychological, the whole nine yards. So it's, we can't really, it's good to sit there and try to get data, to collect the data, but ultimately in the interpretation to open up to the wider world of, of how, what this attack really is about fundamentally is there's, it ties into that spiritual place. It's spiritual in essence. So you went for a routine procedure to get a polyp removed. Next thing you know, this doctor is very nervous. Obviously, someone probably had him do something to you during that surgery. He got a payoff. Um, Possibly. And even there, the only thing I have evidence of is a recorded conversation where I asked him, do you know if something dangerous happened to me? Do you know if somebody hurt me when I was under anesthesia? And he said, um, I don't know. I have that recorded. Okay. So I don't, I can't make deductions. I can't. The only thing I have recorded is a cell phone conversation after what happened. And I asked him, do you know anything about nanotechnology? And you know, his answers were affirming that he knew what nanotechnology, what it, you know, what it was, but he couldn't go further into the conversation. And it's interesting because I called him six months after all this stuff happened to me because I'm trying to put information together. I'm, I would say six months after I figured out what was going on, not six months after the surgery, but six months after I put pieces together, that's when I realized, okay, he's trying, he said, I'm no longer in business there. Go see my son if you need another checkup. 
So his office was completely closed. He no longer worked as a doctor. He was there for 30 something or more years. He had a whole staff. Nobody, there's no more people there. They don't, he, his son took on the rest mm -hmm. of all that because the office is gone. It, it doesn't exist anymore. So, so that's the only thing I can do is put information together. I, I can't say, I, I can't put more okay. to it other than what I see or hear. But the experience was you're a year and a half out from this procedure and you feel like you're getting cooked from the inside out. So then what happened? What'd you do? So that's when, um, because of my uncle's story, my uncle was a targeted individual and this was confirmed and I helped him in 2006 to gather data to evidence this was true. We opened congressional files with him. We had, I spoke with the D, uh, veteran affairs in Puerto Rico. I, I called the Amen Clinic in uh, California. I spoke with his doctor. He gave me power of attorney so I could say anything and speak freely to these people. And everything at the very end of six weeks proved to me he was, in fact, a targeted person, an individual. So I said, listen, there's no remedy that I know of. You need to hang out with others who are going through the experience or talk with them, get on radio shows, go on these talk shoes or whatever have you because I don't understand it. So you need to be in groups where other people get it. I only understand it conceptually, but my advice to you is you need to leave the country because this country, we don't have a remedy right now for this. And so as a result, I collected his file and frankly, the file was, was thick. It was very thick, okay? So I remembered when I was going through the cook on the inside out being, you know, whatever, <laughs> I remembered, oh, well, my uncle used to feel feelings like that. Let me see if I can go through his file. Let me see if there's something similar, maybe in the symptoms, maybe there's some way I can verify that this is happening. So I went through his file and um, I, I saw a doctor, um, I saw Dr. Hildegard Standinger's records in there for a James Walbert. I saw Melinda Kidder from Columbia Investigations, who's a private investigator. And I said, well, why don't, I said, isn't this perfect? I, I just so happen to have a client that needs me in, in the next couple of weeks or so. And Melinda Kidder is only two hours away from the court. Why don't I just set up a time? So I called her up said, how much is this scan going to cost? I just need to rule it out. It could be nonsense. I said, it could be stupid, you know, stupid, just some in my thought process here that's not accurate. I just want to rule it out. Maybe I am having hot flashes. She said, sure, you know, we'll set up a time. I paid her in advance. You know, I always like to, to, to build that trust. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of times, uh, I noticed that in, in my interactions with, with the private investigators or doctors or when anyone usually deals with someone who's targeted, a lot of times people get a little weird or they, they don't feel comfortable. And, and, and so I tried to assure them up front that, yeah, I may be targeted, but I'm not, you know, I'm going to pay you and I'm going to be timely and I'm going to be an honor. So I'm going to do what I can here to build that rapport. So uh, I contacted Melinda. I went to see her. She, she ran a bunch of tests over a three-hour period. And for sure, she found uh, nano Tesla signals. She found a lot of signals in the mastoid air region in the back of the head. She found signals coming from uh, the abdominal area. 
uh, in the RF spectrum, you know, uh, you know, the multiple tests, okay, with, with, with different machines to detect which ones, um, what kind of signals, and what, I said, well, what could ever possibly generate these things? She says, well, it's like you're a walking, talking, like you're a cell phone. And these signals will communicate with something that's in your body. So I said, so there is something in my body. She says, yeah, otherwise it wouldn't be able to communicate like that. I said, okay, what is my next step? And I, I asked her, I said, well, Melinda, I just want to know, have you ever had someone come back to you like six months later and get retested and have no more signals? She said, no, that's never happened. Right. I said, nice to meet you. I will be back. I'll see you in six months because whatever this is, we're going to fix it. I don't know how, but God is going to show me because this isn't natural. And this isn't, I never asked for this. I didn't agree to this. So I'm not going to go along with this. So she said, okay, I'll, I'll generate a report for you. And I want you to see a Dr. Hildegard Staniger. And I was like, I didn't know if that's a girl or a woman or a man. I didn't know anything. So as I went from Missouri to teach a class in California, I noticed things happening in my ears. It was very uncomfortable and it was very painful, only on the descent in the plane. So when I went from California, headed back home to Texas, we had a couple legs on the trip and one of the legs was in San Diego. So we stopped and on the descent, my ears literally were oozing this pinkish fluid and it was so painful. I was crying and I'm like, is there anybody that has anything like Advil, Tylenol, you know, anything. And the stewardess is like, I'm so sorry. Even if I had it, I'm not allowed to give it. I was like, oh, I totally understand. So I, I got off the plane on that leg because I'm like, I am not going home. I'm not going to Texas. I'm not getting on a plane to have to descend again and go through this incredible pain. So I'm in San Diego and the lady's like, do you want, I said, I need to, can you please just get me my bags? And I was rather urgent about it. I was like, I need my bags. She's like, do you need, do you need an ambulance? Or I said, no, 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 I'm perfectly fine. Everything's fine. I just need my bags. So she went to go get my bags and I sat outside. It was a beautiful day. San Diego is beautiful. And uh, I'm sitting there and I'm like, who do I know? Do I know anybody in California? Who do I know? So I pull out my traditional, my old style address book. And I'm like, oh, perfect. My friend Mark, he lives somewhere here in California. So I call him up. He said, Mark, I'm in San Diego. Can you pick me up? He's like, well, of course. Well, he's in Los Angeles. So I took, I went and I got a uh, hotel and stayed in the hotel for like a whole month, really, because, but the first three days I just slept to recover from that ear issue. And at that stage, I'm like, okay, um, Melinda told me to see a doctor and I, I think she mentioned somewhere in California or something, but I, I didn't do any research. So I went to research and Melinda gave me my report. I researched it and found Dr. Hildegard Staniger, Los Angeles, California. I'm like, this is perfect. I'm, this is so perfect. So I did all the protocols, you know, as she asks, because um, Dr. Hilde is, is a PhD. She's not a medical, she's not a medical doctor. So in order to get to see her, she wants your, your medical doctor to write to her 
and, and that's, that's her way of being able to get the data to him or her so that they can get further testing done, whether it be an, an MRI or other forms of tests or blood or what have you. So, so Dr. Hildegard Staniger is a toxicologist. Um, and so I followed through with all of that. I called my friend uh, who's a doctor and I said, listen, I have evidence that I have high heavy metal toxicity. I have a urine test. I have a, I have a, a hair test. Why don't you go ahead and I'll show you how to, you know, where to fill out the form. She filled out the form. I went straight in to see Dr. Hildy in like five days after that or something. I waited. I went in to talk with her and she tested me for signals and it confirmed there were signals in my body. So then at that stage, that's when I said, okay, well, where could these be coming from? I, I, is there some sort of a microchip in me? She said, no, no, this is nanotechnology. And I said, what's that? She says, <laughs> she tries to explain it. And I'm like, whoa, hold on here. That's way over my head. Um, nanotechnology. I said, let me just, let me ask you this one question. Cause I'm always about the bottom line. You know, I, I like to just get to the remedy. So I held up my debit card and I said, what do you need? Can you fix the problem? She said, absolutely, but you have to follow the protocols and it's not going to be fun. I said, take what you need. So she's trying to take just a little bit off the card for a few herbs. I said, no, 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 hold on here. How many months do I need to do this for? She said, three to six months. I said, I'm not coming back here. So I need everything now. And, and so she gave me like a... So, Four, four um, briefcases full of herbs, and she oh had to go up and help me to carry it to the car <laughs> and bags and all this other stuff. So I was literally, that day, I started taking 75 pills that I didn't care. I went to the restaurant. People are laughing. I got, like, all my bottles strewn out, and I'm just mowing down all these pills. And her products don't have nanotech in them. They're actually certified. Uh, GMO free and all that good stuff. So I'm not, you know, hurting my body by putting this stuff in me. It's just food and, and other wonderful things too. So, uh, so at that point, I'm, I get home. I tell my friends, listen, uh, I'm going to be very busy. I need three months. You have to, you just need to leave me alone. You're not allowed to come visit. Uh, and it's okay. Everything's fine. I just need to really do some things here and I can't focus on until I have a complete focus and I, I can't have you there. They all understood. They were good about it. And so I said, okay, now I need to start to study shielding. I'm not an expert. I'm not an engineer. I don't know much about the, the, the RF chart. I'm not, I don't know all that stuff. So what I like to do is approach it from a point of view. Let's pretend they're hitting me with everything. Mm. Let's say it's lasers. Let's say it's uh, micro Tesla. Or let's say it's an RF. Let's say it's microwave. Let's say let's just say it's all of that. So I started the research, <laughs> and I put together. It's comical because I had to dress up in in uh, um, like carpentry clothes and pretend that I'm building. A, I'm doing a building project, so I don't freak anyone out. And I go and I buy these materials and, and, and wheel 300 pounds of, you know, lead up the stairs and a bunch of other things. And, 
I'm just like, I had to cut this stuff myself. I'm laughing half to death too. I mean, I was having fun. <laughs> this, this all looks like a, if they weren't, if, if, if no one thought it was crazy before then, if they saw me doing all this, yeah, yeah they're going to think what's going on here. And I just tell people, Oh, I'm working on a, a pool project. You know, if someone, you know, whatever, I'll say, oh, I'm just working on a project. And I try to act as normal as possible. Even if I'm in pain, I'll be like, yeah, I'm just, you know, just trying this new thing out here. It's just, a, it's just an experiment. And so um, I built the Faraday cave and it wasn't perfect, but I have my RF readers showing outside the, because um, outside the, um, the Faraday, it, it registered in the red, you know, my, my readers, my, the DS100 is what I used in the JM20 Pro. And then I had the X-Tech and I, I had other, I had gadgets. I had the Aseco. And so I put them on and on the outside. Now, again, I didn't have wireless. I had wired internet. So the wired wouldn't show like a, a red signal. That's normal if you have wireless, right? So my stuff was wired. I tried to do the best I could so I wouldn't hurt my head or my whole body. And then when I went into the cave, it showed in the green practically no signal. I was like, praise God, it worked. <laughs> wow. And okay. I was like, because it looks, it looks so funny. And if anyone ever visited me, they would say, what the heck is that? But I had to keep everybody away from me because here's my, I believe strongly, because when Hildy was sharing with me that nanotechnology, in order for it to assemble, in order for it to assemble to the point where it creates a device in your body that will receive a signal, it needs those, that, that kind of a signal or some form of energy. Well, I thought to myself, well, the only thing to do is to, to be in a situation where I'm not giving it energy at least some part of the night when I'm sleeping. Mm. And when it's not, you know, charging the body, because that's what RF does. It's a charge. If I can find a way to not let my body get charged and anchor it and, 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 um, and, and uh, ground my body, if, if there's a way to do that while I'm in this Faraday, then I'm going to be in really good shape here. So that's what I did. And the cave was little because I couldn't afford like $5,000. You know, at one time I had to spend $2,000 when I was on the run to remake the stupid the Faraday. I was like, oh no, I had to do it again. Oh. And because uh, they found me where I was and I was like, this is not good. This isn't good. But uh, I, I have different variations of the Faraday that, that's being presented. Now I'm going to bring this matter up because I think now it's appropriate yeah. per our conversation earlier. Um, and we'll, we'll continue in the story here, but a, a lot of people, when I came out with my story a few months ago, maybe four months ago now, I told, I came out with my story. I shared how I was targeted and I shared how I was free after that. And I'm no longer being targeted in the sense of, I may still be a target, but I'm not their victim and I'm protected now. Praise God. And there's a whole system to that. What I've done, because I've had literally thousands and thousands of emails, and I was literally up till three in the morning trying to write everybody back, and I apologize to everyone because I did my best. I'm realizing I'm only one person, and I just can't do it all, and I don't know how to train other people to do all this stuff. I've got one other person on my team who's trying, but it isn't right, and it's not fair to do that. 
So I'm like, wait a minute, I can't do consulting anymore. The targeted to free Christ the Law Hermitage's program for consulting is no longer available because I just don't have the time. The clients that I do have, I'm, I'm continuing to keep them. I'm going to move forward with them to the best of my ability. One of them is my uncle. But um, what I did was I took my system. I took it and, it, it and I put it on a DVD, or rather, in this case, it's a DVD package. There's two DVDs and one CD-ROM. This is only part one of the series, and it's called My Story from Targeted to Free, Love is the Answer. And this is what it looks like, okay? And so basically what it says here is part one of two, you will learn how Sister Curie gathered the facts, assessed what was happening to her, how she shielded herself both physically and spiritually. You gotta shield yourself spiritually too here, guys. You will hear actual testimonies from her team and will have Sister Curie's toolbox of remedies that she used to empower herself to raise her vibration and to comfort herself in this fact-gathering stage. Her approach is faith-based, yet she accommodates a universal audience. And then part two is coming soon. So what's here is two DVDs about almost six hours long and then a CD-ROM with data on it. And um, this is by pre-order at this current time. The shipments will go out like, I think it's December 29th or something like that. That's on my website, clergyvictim.com. We're attempting to put it up on the website. I just called my web people and they said a lot of weird things are going on, but we're going to do everything we can to help you. They said, don't give up. We're here to help you. So my website people are, my, the website company itself saw anomalies this morning going on. Uh, so that's it. So if anyone wants to purchase, this is only part one of the series. Uh, $55 is the donation. Frankly, I spent $400,000 to get to this remedy, but I'm doing this to get this out there for people to show them you can do this yourself and you don't have to lose hope. And um, hopefully um, we're doing our best. Now, maybe the second one will be better, higher quality, but I'm still using a regular, a little small camera to do this. So it's not like professional quality and I'm still learning how to use the program. So forgive that. But the content is uh, is here. <laughs> so, 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 and I, and I assume that some of these strategies include the herbal uh, protocol you went through. Yes, yes, but the, that's, that's going to be on the second DVD because before you clean yourself out, guys, do not get rid of your evidence because if you do a thorough cleaning, how are we going to know if you've disassembled, if you destroyed the nanotech in your body and it no longer emits a signal? How can we get the signals tested through TSCM measures? You don't want to get rid of your evidence first. This DVD covers how do you collect the data? What did I do? Here's, here's what I, and I basically say, there's no legal advice here. There's no medical advice. This is just simply what I did to mm -hmm. deconstruct what they did to me. And it's systematic and there's a checklist and the checklist is what I did for myself. And for those who are out there, because I was helping clients for like, like I said, year and a half or two years previously without my name being disclosed in the past, I have a checklist so you can interview yourself and figure out what's happening, right? You take the checklist and then you, you can work with the private investigator that's featured here in the interview, the ones that I use that know that this stuff is real. You don't have to reinvent the wheel and try to convince another private investigator. 
So our goal in this first DVD series is to, is to show you how to gather the facts and like you said, to tie, to tie the pieces together so you can get a picture as to really what's happening with you and not just what, a, what theory is coming along. So now coming back to you, you, you told your doctor, all right, huh, I'm not coming <laughs> back, but the other person that gave you the data and you're like, look, they're, they're blasting you with signals. There's all these things that I'm measuring them in the back of your head, this and that. I'll be back in six months. I'm going to solve a problem. I don't know how I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you're suggesting you had some success here. What kind of success? And, and what did the journey towards success look like? I mean, did you okay. know? It was hell. It wasn't fun. I mean, I'm talking hours and hours and hours in a sauna, drinking gallons and gallons of water. Special. I make special water with electrolytes and things like that. Um, it's frankly, it's just not fun. Um, however, the reason when I, when, when I realized what was happening to me, I believe I came from a point of view that I believe whatever's done, if it's not Christ-like, if it's not of God, it can be undone because what was happening to me, I believe in a hundred percent, but this is, this is demonic. It's, it's really not, it's, it's, it's evil what's happening here. And their intent was evil. And so, of course, I do tie back, just so you know, in my story, there's plenty. I'm all over YouTube, by the way. If people really want to know how the Abbey's a CIA front uh, cover, you can go to my website, clergyvictim.com, under military-grade nanotech. That tab will get you more into the story. I'm on um, Carrie Cassidy's program. I'm on uh, VLTV, and I literally outline documents and pictures and photographs. And on my YouTube channel, I illustrate a, a PowerPoint called Jesus Defeats Nanotechnology. And I show it's uh, on the YouTube channel, Sister Kiri Bernor. And it's probably like 23 or 32 minutes long. It's like half an hour tops. And I explain, you know, uh, here's you know, the beginning process, here's the reports, and then the after reports show a total turnaround of results, because I came back to the doctor and the private investigator, both of them, six months to nine months later, and the, there was no more signals coming out of my body. Signals were going to my body, because the materials in my body were melted, and they weren't registered. It's like a broken radio. <laughs> I, I destroyed what they were doing with God's grace and his help because without him, it's impossible, I believe. So then I went to the doctors and I went and redid all those blood tests. And I'm talking 150 vials of blood, not all in one day, 75 vials in one day and then do it three days later or something. And, and it showed no more porphyrins, no more. It's all cleaned out. There's no more nano in my total turnaround and results before and after pictures. And it's a process, and it's a cleansing, and it's, it's hardcore, it's spiritual, it's physical. And so um, even to this day, I still have to upkeep that. That's some, I always, I'm, I'm like high, high maintenance, okay? High maintenance, you know? Uh, but it's worth it in the end. It's really worth it because how did I know that I could have success? All I know is I love Jesus Christ, and I know he, this is his story he's writing through me. And I'm sometimes the, the vessel that says yes. And sometimes I'll say yes, but I'll still kick him in the shins and say, what? 
come on now, this is not that fun. <laughs> God can handle my, my kicks in, in the shins. He understands that. He understands that. Uh, and, and so I just, what this is about is a mindset and, and, and it has to come from the mindset first and broadcasting a, a frequency. And what's that frequency? Yeah, you may be a target, but you don't have to be a victim. And that's mm -hmm. the ultimate key. So praise God uh, for that. And again, if you want more solid stories on the, the, the intelligence aspect and connecting the dots and, and again, to St. Joseph's Abbey, what I discovered about them is that they have handlers that are higher than they are. That when I was trying to resolve this with them with, with lawyers, and I mean, I had five uh, counselors on my side who were going to help me. My attorney started to get sick when St. Joseph's Abbey's attorney reached out to us and they wanted to settle this matter. They gave us five weeks and we were going to go up to, to Boston or thereabouts and sit down and talk about all this. And in the course of doing all that, um, our people started getting really sick, you know, and horrible things were happening to them. And I mean, really bad. So uh, to the point where real violence was taking place to, to one of the attorneys, I listed on, on the bottom of the communications, or rather, uh, we, we listed it because it was a joint effort here. That hey, We lost your camera. Oh, sorry. All right. Is that any better? Very good. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, so at that point, the attorneys, uh, you know, bottom line, were just getting it left and right, you know, strokes with their family members, uh, sicknesses they couldn't understand, uh, being beat with a baseball bat. One of, there was a rumor going around that I had an, another attorney because I kept putting unknown attorney and I only stipulated the lead attorney who was communicating, who was Robert Gray. And then I had all the other, all the other attorneys on my list listed as unknown attorneys because I didn't want something bad to happen to them. This was all still during the Obama administration. And I had, you know, cause to believe that since Bob Gray was speaking with Timothy Wickstrom, who was the attorney for St. Joseph's Abbey, that they were going to be cool with each other. There wasn't going to be an issue. Well, the unknown attorneys who was presumed as unknown attorneys, they were going after them. They were going after them. So I'm like, wait, everybody, you're fired. This isn't going to work. We can't do negotiations with, with the Abbey because there's someone higher than they are, meaning the Jesuits, who are controlling them. Peter Hans Kolbenbach had conversations with Abbot Damien Carr in 2006, okay, and, and, or maybe even before that. And I'm telling you right now, he's the head at that time. He was the black pope at that time. So there's real interactions going on with the highest access globalist powers with St. Joseph's Abbey. And furthermore, the Abbey had a founder named G. Peter Grace, who headed Mind Control Ultra, getting the Project Paperclip people over here, and MK Delta, which is all involved in chemical warfare, okay? So this all connected later to me. I'm like, what the heck? So this monastery, not all the monks in there are bad. And that's important to understand. If an evil, if someone who's doing evil needs a front, they're going to use good people as a front, you know, sure. to cover up what they're doing. So uh, then I realized that I was like, okay, so the approach has to change here. There's not, I don't have um, hatred towards Father Dominic or towards even the priest that abused me or, or Father Damien Carr. I, I, I get now that there's a, there's, they have a hierarchy. And um, so my approach had to change. My strategy had to change. The strategy I utilized is being spelled out 
in this DVD and in the next one, which is the other part of this series. Now that we have Donald J. Trump in office, praise God, okay, my communications made it to him within five days of my, my communications getting to him, no more bad guys were following me. And I have before and after pictures of the bad guys following me, even to the point where there are helicopters outside my house with open doors in the helicopters looking at me through my window. Okay, to the point where my electricity, all of our electricity on that block was shut down and they were ready to do something really not good in that very moment. And I called my people in Washington, D.C. and I said, something's going to go down. You need to take my book, Divine Challenge, put it up on the website for free right now. We did it in 2000. It's up there. I can't remember chronologies. But anyway, I have an entire book that's this thick that goes through the whole chronology. So People might say, well, why do you have a hard time remembering? There's too many things that happened, and so I like to be factual. So all I can do is say, I have a booklet on that. And if you want to access a lot of the content in that booklet without uh, accessing the exhibits, you can go to clergyvictim.com, go back to the military-grade materials, click on that, and then it will say, go back to the Wayback Machine, click here, and you'll see my affidavit. So that's going to help people understand that there's a sequence here. So yeah, I called Washington, D.C. My people put up the, the book because I had a plan in place if, if they were going to come kill me to take my whole story, put yes. it up on the website for free so it ties the motive into yes. why the powers who control the St. Joseph's Abbey are involved in wanting to have me killed and who, why, who are the players at St. Joseph's Abbey that were involved. So... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Carrie, you have an incredible story. I mean, and that's, of course, why we have you on a podcast sharing it, because other people do need to know this. I mean, I find your story absolutely fascinating. And, and, and the beautiful thing is that, you know, you have a heart that says, I will not settle. And you took steps to illustrate something, that there is hope. That there is hope, because a lot of people, they don't have it, especially if they've been tracking with the targeted individual symptomology list. It's just like, you know, I have ringing in my ears. I have these feelings that get blasted by frequencies. I get, you know, and what they're doing isn't working. And you try to do a little bit here, try to do a little bit here. At the end of the day, they just wind up listening to lots of podcasts and there are people talking about it. And there's not a lot of answers. Now we've seen some very supernatural answers on our end, we've actually had implants pulled out of people by the angels. We've had miracle deliverances from physical technology and pictures to prove it. And um, some of that has been extraordinary. However, you know, um, when people ask, well, can you manifest that miracle for me too? It's like, but I'm not the miracle maker. That's Jesus's job. I can <laughs> pray for it. But yep. um, oftentimes, you know, there's the, the miracle category and then there are solution sets that actually do produce things with some kind of repeatable result. And, and that's something that I've been believing God for. I'm like, you know, for some of these technology problems, I've been waiting for some better solutions to, to, to point people towards and to give people. I have certainly found that naturopathic uh, uh, offerings do seem to be a highway to this. And I, I've gotten that piece um, 
and now we're listening to you talk and I, I'm, I'm just so grateful that uh, you've taken the time to put all this together. And so is there anything else that you want to say before we conclude this program? Absolutely. You just gave me some real good uh, information there and I'd love for you to share anything. Just send it to my email on any of those stories. That's wonderful. I didn't even know that, that you had that experience uh, in your arena there. Um, how wonderful. Praise God. I'm so, that's so wonderful. See, I've seen others when I came out with my story say, um, you don't have to pay 400000 to get out of this mess. God could just heal you. And let me tell you something. That's one of the reasons I had a kicking session with Jesus Christ on this issue was, wait a minute. Okay. I believe in his healing. And I was chased around my own country for five years. I had to spend all these funds, which still hasn't been replenished yet. I'm still trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to do this? I mean, I've had to change my career life, my career path five times in one year because I had to use fake, I had to use aliases, change my career path five times so they couldn't find me or more, more than that, in one year. And I mean, literally from consulting with friends with the IRS, from consulting on color therapy, from consulting on, you name it. I mean, I practically did almost everything out there. And so when you're sharing this story, I was hit with military-grade nanotech that was with, spe with specific intent to kill me. Mm. You know, on different occasions, some of them were just to monitor the brain or to, you know, it goes into the controlling and monitoring of the brain to have me as a listening device and to see through my eyes, the sclerellas of my eyes and all this stuff, right? This, this real, it's Jason Bourne kind of stuff, okay? This is Bourne identity stuff to then uh, fast-activating nanotech sprayed in my car that traces to, to trying to kill me within a 45-day period of time, and to, to giving me colon cancer, to breast cancer, to all of these issues that are all enumerated in that big, fat book. And, and, and so these miracles, praise God, exist. And yet at the same time, people say, well, you, you, all you have to do is believe in God. And I'm like, but I believe in God. And so I believe that the Lord allowed me to suffer this way so I could document everything so that for those who perhaps may not know Christ yet or may not know how to pray in that way or have others pray that way or may not have access to that, I don't know, but that they would have some way that they could actively participate in their, way, in their healing process. So it's a mystery to me why the Lord allowed this. But to me, I look at it as nine case uh, studies. I'm a nine case study story, okay, because different kinds of nanotech was used on me. So I collected all that data so I could share, okay, if you're being attacked with a military grade nanotech, here's how we can clean that out. If this is a, a, another kind of nanotechnology, which a lot of people are asking me, well, how do I prevent this? I know it's in the food. I know it's in the air. I know it's everywhere. That's going to have to be another DVD series because for this DVD, we need to specifically address the targeted people who are targeted with military grade nanotech. Um, so with that being said, I believe Jesus is the author and the finisher of, of the remedy in me. And he's expressing the remedy the way he sees fit. Although you can bet, I would have surely would have rather had him just cleanse my body. <laughs> just once, just clean it all out for good for once. And that's it. And I wouldn't be attacked over a five year period of time. 
but I believe that this is a catalog for his glory so that whoever needs to get this information, this is designed specifically for those souls who God is calling this information to. It's not up to me. It, what's up to me is to only do what's in front of me, what he tells me to do to the best of my ability as far as I know. So hopefully that clarifies that one. Oh, well, thank you for sharing. And, and you know, um, I, I, I agree. I, I can even tell you, you know, because we do, I, I do a lot of deliverance work, right? And there have been times where I have been so miffed, you know, because the person will literally see Jesus right there. And this massive principality or demon like right there. And I'll say, leave. And it wouldn't leave. And then I say, Jesus, make it leave. And he would just stand there and they would just see him standing there. And I'm like, you are God and you are there. And there's a massive entity right there. Just punch him in the face. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But he would let me spend an hour and a half longer to unravel the language and the spiritual mechanics behind why that thing did not leave when I said, in the name of Jesus, you need to go. So that I could document it, write it down, and then have a template that I could give to other people who could give to other people who could find themselves in you know battles on the behalf of their friends and community members, pull out our templates and get breakthroughs that were repeatable and expectable because they had the mechanics articulated for them. Half of that went into the book, Prayers of Shake Heaven and Earth. We're having a volume two come out, you know, and, and, and this book has done extremely well and blessed thousands of people's lives. And, and it's like the hard work sometimes is, 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 is there so that the maximum amount of fruit can, can manifest, even fruit that has nothing to do with, you know, you being there personally or, or me being there personally. I don't need to be the one praying for people. If something can be articulated that is repeatable, and um, that's the beauty, I think, in some of these things, even though the journey is not easy. <laughs> no, no, not at all. God bless you. Wow. God bless yep. you. Yeah, anything you'd like to share in that regard, too, because I have my own little toolkit in regards to the spiritual toolkit. And uh, so whatever I have, I'm, I'm happy to share because there's really cool prayers. See, I'm an Orthodox Christian, right? And so as being Orthodox, when I left the Roman Catholic Church, it took me three years to really study into the root of where I wanted to be. And so I aligned myself with orthodoxy for a variety of reasons. And that could be an entire show in and of itself. I mean, that could go on for hours. And it started with my studies into this guy named Constantine, who some allege has created the church in 325 in the council of uh, the ecumenical council of Nicaea. And I'm like, wait a minute, I need to look into this guy. So I study this Constantine dude and there's two parallels in history. You have one parallel story where Constantine is seen as a villain. He's written about, and I believe are alluded to in the Almanac of Evil. He's alluded to as being uh, just trash, essentially. Then I have this other, and I interview, you know, people in the, Rome, the, the Orthodox Church. And the Orthodox Church have him esteemed as a saint. And both stories do not look alike whatsoever. They're completely opposite. So I'm like, who is who? So as far as I'm concerned, Donald Trump is the modern-day Constantine. Okay, why do I say that? 
because I believe he is the most misunderstood figure in history other than Christ. That Constantine was most misunderstood, and I want to do a whole program on that one sometime. I did a three-hour program years ago, okay. I think in 2008. Three hours just on Constantine. And I un unraveled how the Jesuits took what his experience was and harvested it for themselves, plagiarized it, and then twisted it so that nobody would ever know how to go back to the earliest writings of the church to see what's the true church. In terms of what I say the true church means, where did the, the faith come from in the first place? Because a lot of people say, oh, when I joined the Roman church, I was like, oh, wow, they have their roots, and it goes all the way back to the apostolic succession. In the, when I was hurt in the Roman Catholic church, I believed outside the church, no salvation. So I was like, well, what do I do about that? Um, I can't leave the church or I'm going to lose my soul. So this caused me incredible suffering, as you were talking about, you know, there's all this incredible work. And I penetrated into the lie from the truth and figured it out that, okay, there's two realms of history that are being taught. The Roman Catholics and the Protestants and the Ar Arcanum, the people who are into the dark arts, esteem Constantine as someone who's evil. There's only one, one place who esteems him as holy and as a saint, not holy his whole life, but holy unto the ending of his life and what he's done for Christianity in terms of um, making Christians be able to coexist with during a pagan empire when they were supposed to be underground, they were living in catacombs. And so he opened up that area through the Edict of Milan to allow Christians to coexist, to live and not have to live in the catacombs and have their land taken. I mean, this is modern day. This is what's happening. The IRS totally targeted their stories all over the internet. And even the IRS admitting that they've targeted Christians. This is the modern day Inquisition. And you, you have a, a modern day Constantine who's addressing this stuff now. Well, that is a fascinating, fascinating thought, Carrie. Um, <laughs> we may have to explore that some other time. I, uh, I am out of time for this podcast, but I just want to say thank you. Um, thank you for taking the time and also for putting together what you've put together and for the bravery to share your story. So folks, one last time, you can find her at www.clergyvictim.com. And until next time, God bless. God's God bless people. you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. If you would like to connect with us at Bride Ministries or to support what we are doing financially, visit us at www.bridemovement.com.